Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the very first edition of Martin Slitschka Safe Bet Show. That might be a cheesy name, but hopefully it will turn out to be what it says on the tin. So we will be focusing mainly, not solely, but mainly on all things consumer protection, particularly on responsible gambling. And I can't think about any better inaugural guest than Mr. Alan Feldman that has very kindly accepted my invitation. I wouldn't go as far as saying that he would be a guinea pig, but I have to admit that this is the first time I'm being a host of a podcast, I suppose just like Alan, I'm used to being at the receiving end of the questions. So today, and hopefully all being well going forward, I will have the luxury of asking interesting people questions about consumer protection and responsible gambling. Before I do that, although that short bio that Alan has very kindly provided me with doesn't do him justice by any means, but let me just, for those of you who happen not to know who Alan Feldman is, let me just tell you that throughout his 30-year career in gaming, Mr. Feldman did develop a reputation as one of the industry's most outspoken, and I would add leading advocates for responsible gambling. Alan has retired from the industry and following that retirement, well, he hasn't really retired because he was appointed as a distinguished fellow of the International Gaming Institute at UNLV, with whom I myself have had the privilege and pleasure of working. Alan also serves as chair of both the International Center for Responsible Gaming and the Nevada Advisory Committee on Problem Gambling, and we will touch upon that throughout this podcast. Additionally, and finally, though last but certainly not least, he also serves as a member of the Massachusetts Gambling Research Advisory Committee and is on the faculty for the International Executive Development Program at the University of Nevada, Reno. Welcome, Alan. It's great to have you on the show. Martin, thank you so much. And, and thank you for asking me to be your first guest. I, I think that frankly shows more trust than I'm probably deserving of, but I appreciate it nonetheless. I'm sure you are. Well, let's see if uh, either of us disgraces himself today. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not. I'm sure it will go swimmingly well. And let me perhaps, hopefully it will not come from, from the left field because that's a topic that is not related to your, to your illustrious career in the industry, but it's a topic that is very close to our respective hearts. And that's hockey, or as we call it in Europe eyes hockey. We rather unfortunately happen to be supporting different teams in the NHL. For those of you who don't know, Alan is arguably the biggest fan of Las Vegas Knights, Golden Knights rather, still a relatively new franchise in the NHL that has already had phenomenal success though. Whereas your host today is a big fan of the Boston Bruins, so a rather traditional franchise in the in the hockey world. So, Alan, perhaps to try to link our shared love of hockey with gambling, just like these, well, arguably now back in the day, the likes of Berger Salming, or even Jaromir Jager, Dominic Hasek, all these fantastic players, and of course, Benchek, I'm biased, so I should also be talking about the Soviet, and then after that, the Russian players, such as Pavel Bure, Sergei Fyodorov, and, and all the others have landed on the American and Canadian shores. These days, 
it's the European gambling operators that are landing on the US shore. So would you see a parallel between what's been happening in the world of hockey and what's currently happening in connection with the US sports betting regulation? You know, weirdly enough, I do think that there is a connection. I mean, if you think about the evolution of hockey in America, it it started out as a really rough and tumble sport. Um, you know, hockey was as much known for elbows and sticks flying and and fighting in its early days. And and what I think the Europeans brought was was a much greater emphasis on skating and passing and and the you know the elegance and the speed of the sport. And at the same time, for for all of it, there has been an ever growing emphasis on player safety and player health in order to maintain the game, in order that the game can become sustainable for fans. So you've seen improvements in equipment, improvements in the rules intended to provide for a safer environment within which the game can be played. And and I think in all reality, the same thing can be said in the casino industry and in the sports betting industry, that we're seeing some of those same influences. We're learning from European partners, we're learning from the European experience. And ultimately, we should also learn fundamentally that player safety and player health is a critical ingredient for sustainable growth and sustainability in the industry right from the get-go. So I suppose the bottom line would be, if you agree, feel free to disagree, of course, that mm -hmm. just like the NHL that's moved from Gordie Howe style hat-tricks, a goal and an assist right. and a fight in the game, but moving on to the finesse of these days of players such as arguably uh, arguably Sidney Crosby, David Bostenyak, uh, McJesus, as Mr. Conor McDavid <laughs> is nicknamed. So would you would you feel that the U.S. gambling industry is going through similar kind of transformation. I, I think that it is. It's it's going through it in some cases less than fully willingly, and I think I think that's part of the role that that folks like me need to play. I think that we need to articulate and help the industry to understand that that player health isn't a, a matter of compliance. Player health is a business strategy. Player health and player safety is a part of, of the means of enhancing the whole ecosystem so that you can have a business, you can grow a business, you can maintain the industry in a way that is uh, that, that becomes attractive to shareholders, attractive to investors, attractive to communities. And rather than simply being one of, of kind of protecting your, your rear flank from legal action or regulatory, you know, disciplinary action. And, and that's a bit of a sea change in the way in which I think a lot of, of so-called responsible gaming uh, initiatives were seen 20 years ago. I think they were always seen as, as a defensive move to, against regulatory incursion. And I think going forward, we need to be thinking about this in an entirely different way, much more as customer service. And so if you think about it in the way of the NHL, um, in order to allow players like Connor McDavid 
and and others to exist people in that you know Sidney Crosby and people in that that category you have to have certain rules right I mean we, we, they they actually needed to mandate helmets I mean it's, it's kind of a crazy idea today but I fully well remember when not everyone wore a helmet not everyone wore a face shield um, where high sticks were part of the game um, where we're taking the stick and smashing it against someone's hands that was part of the game and you can't do that anymore and you can't do it anymore because it's the people who are really capable of stick handling and really capable of skating that you're not allowed to slow down by putting your stick across their their throat and that helps make the game faster that helps make the game more exciting and so, yeah, there's some give and take in that. And, and I don't know, maybe there are some people who just really wish that it was more gladiatorial out on the ice. But I, for one, think the game's far better for it now and far more exciting. And my dad happened to have been a hockey player in his college days as well. So I do remember, I didn't experience them myself, but I do remember him telling these stories when I was a kid and actually ever since but I suppose uh, both of us could be talking hockey for hours and hours but that may not necessarily be of such interest to the intended audience of this podcast plus uh, sadly I haven't put my Don Cherry outfit on so we'll <laughs> talk about these these particular issues offline and you started talking about uh, the the industry and the and the developments and i can't agree more that uh, it is also my view that doing good gambling business means doing good consumer protection excellent consumer protection and good responsible gambling and that's a nice segue into the next question I was going to ask you about, and that is if you were to, in your mind, go back or these years ago when you started with the industry, could you tell me and uh, the audience a bit more about it, how it all started? And of course, it's been a story of legends ever since, but uh, what did it feel like at the, at the beginning and what motivated you to join this industry? How did it all happen? Well, I, I suppose it, it, started long before I was in the industry. It started at home as a kid growing up. Um, I think I think that if I were to try to describe my father, he would probably be Bernie Sanders uh, before Bernie Sanders was ever a politician. Um, that was sort of the archetype of, of my dad and my family, the way my family viewed society and responsibility in, in society. And um, when I had a chance to move to Las Vegas, that was not exactly viewed with great pleasure by by my by my parents. I mean, my mom typically was very proud of her son, you know, becoming an executive with a with anybody. But uh, my dad my dad was far more skeptical. He he thought the idea of my going to work for a casino company sounded pretty disquieting. And and he was very concerned that what I was doing was harming people. And he was pretty certain of it without knowing anything about about what it was. And quite frankly, I didn't really love Las Vegas. I mean, any time I had gone, I had gone as a kid and there was absolutely nothing to do. All I was being told constantly was where I could not go. So it didn't it didn't really hold a lot of appeal to me. Um, 
And yet when I got there and, and my first work in Las Vegas was at the Mirage and I saw something that was completely different. Uh, you know, and now I was on the inside of the business and not only was the Mirage completely different in terms of what it was as a, as a product, the, what I saw in the casino was completely different. I didn't see predatory practices. I didn't see people who were, you know, plotting and, 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 uh, strategizing about ways to make everyone lose their last nickel. In fact, quite the contrary. I, I, I overheard conversations about how they could try to make someone take a break. And, and none of that really was public. There seemed to me to be a whole world that was going on in the casino that wasn't being discussed publicly and that wasn't known publicly. And the, the public side of what was being discussed was what you saw in Hollywood, which was, of course, the greedy, predatory nature of casinos. Um, that really came to fore when I started getting involved in development. And as you will remember, in the early 90s here in the United States, Riverboats were becoming very popular up and down the Mississippi. Communities were, were allowing riverboats. And while that wasn't part of the business strategy at, at Mirage, we were focused more in urban centers in Vancouver, in Hartford, Connecticut, in Miami. That's where we were looking to, to see some expansion. And I was spending a lot of time in those places, especially Hartford and Vancouver. And we would go to public meetings, city council and, and planning meetings, and community activists would show up. And so in some cases, people would professor on their, on their cards. And they would say, well, you can't do this because problem gambling is going to skyrocket. If, if, you, if you allow a casino here, it, it's going to be populated entirely by problem gamblers. And 80% of their revenues come from problem gamblers. These wild claims, there were no credible, there was no credible evidence to, to counter this. No one had studied it. <clears throat> there was, it, this was not a matter of whether or not there were problem gamblers. Steve Wynn's father was a problem gambler. So Steve Wynn had firsthand experience with this. There was no questioning whether or not problem gambling was real. The question was, how big a problem was it? How pervasive was it? And anyone who walked through the Mirage could see that you had tens of thousands of people just there having a good time and walking out and going back home and everything was fine. And they'd come back a few months later and stay for a couple of days, have a good time, go home, you know, rinse and repeat. That's, that's who the customer was. They were fine. So this notion that 80% of the money was coming from people who had what we at the time were calling a compulsion or, or an addiction, that was clearly not what was going on, but there was no evidence. And so there was a group of us who got together and, and, and special recognition here to the folks of what we now call Caesars, but at the time was either Harris or the Promise Companies. Um, they were the ones really out ahead of this. And, uh, and they were part of creating what we called the National Center for Responsible Gaming, uh, along with Boyd Gaming and several others who put some money together uh, through Harvard University. We, we reached out and just said, tell us what needs to be researched. Here's the money. 
those of us giving the money are going to now step away and you you work with other fully legitimate scientists put the money to good use let's find out what's going on out there and that was the beginning of 20 years of of absolutely top-notch peer-reviewed scientific research that has led us to where we are now and we now know that in North America about 1% of those who gamble have gambling disorder an absolutely diagnosable mental disorder that's just like any other substance abuse gambling is a substance could be cocaine it could be opioids could be alcohol the brain works in the exact same way and we've even done brain scan research that shows you could take the brain scan of someone on opioids the brain scan of someone who has gambling disorder it is the exact same thing so the, the the disorder is exactly the same thing but it's one percent of people who gamble it's not 50 percent or 60 percent it's one percent so we've got to be very concerned about that one percent and very focused on seeing to it that they get help but we've also got to be very aware that and that that's it. It's that 1%. Then there's another percentage of people who have a variety of harms that happen in their lives from gambling. They can be very mild and they can be very severe and they could be one time and they can be chronic and it's everything in between. And, and frankly, it's pretty dynamic. There are people moving around in that group, but that also is about four or 5%. It's not 60% or 80%. It's a relatively small amount. Again, very important group of people. We need to understand better how to access and interact with that group and get them help, but it's not everybody. Ironically, the part, the group of people that we've kind of ignored the most are the 95% of people who don't suffer harm. It's the 95% of people who gamble, have fun, come back, do it again, that's the group of people that we've all but completely ignored. And that's where responsible gaming comes in. That's the group of people we sort of want to put a protective, you know, protective seal around and make certain that they stay that way. And that they don't kind of leak off into having any sort of problems whatsoever, especially now that gambling is becoming far more ubiquitous, far easier to access because it's online. It's available on our phones or on our iPads. Um, it's available 24 hours a day. It's in our homes, etc. So it's become. I think responsible gaming is becoming more and more important. Absolutely, I could say amen to that and and the podcast here. But then once again, I wouldn't be a great podcast host because it's absolutely fantastic to be talking about these topics with you. I suppose, just like your father, perhaps Bernie Sanders, <laughs> those 30 years ago, he wouldn't have been appreciative, let alone supportive of your move to Las Vegas. But thanks to all your work and the works of the others and special shout out, I suppose, to the likes of Jen Jones and David Satz, who I have a privilege and pleasure to be working with today as part of Entain. They were, they were the driving forces behind the, the Caesars program together with you guys at MGM at that point, and of course, what at that point was called the National Council on 
responsible gambling, so we mustn't forget about them, plus our very good friend Bo Bernard, who I'm sure would uh, be pleased with you having transformed yourself into the into a loving Glaswegian, if I may put it that way, if I may butcher the word Glaswegian, because if I know anybody who's the biggest fan of the city of Las Vegas, it's definitely Bo Bernard, and I'm secretly hopeful that I will get him on one of the next podcasts in the foreseeable future. But back to the point, I wouldn't want to be going off tangent. We've spoken about hockey already. I believe uh, your last point is an excellent segue to my next set of questions. And let me merge a couple of questions together. You've started talking about your work with the likes of the ICRG. And of course, you've been working at and with UNLV, the Nevada Advisory Committee. So it would be great if you could tell me and and those that are watching us whether that's given you any additional scientific or any other freedom, freedom of, if you will, even the freedom of speech and how far you may be able to go in terms of pushing the responsible gambling envelope as to potentially being, whether that's freed you of, and uh, I suppose all of us in our respective roles, we have had a bit of that, and I mean it in the most positive way, just for the avoidance of doubt, you know, the shackles of working in the corporate world that may be somewhat hamstrung in certain respects. So, have you, do you feel that you've obtained even more liberty to make yourself hurt? And about responsible gambling itself, what do you believe is the ultimate end game here? What do we need to be striving to achieve, be it by means of research, but also in connection with prevention and treatment? So I, that's a great question. I, I think that um, we we need to look to the seminal work that was done by Alex Blazinski and uh, Robert Ladusur and Howard Schaefer in the Reno model, where they spoke about the need to have this overarching comprehensive approach to what responsible gaming means. And that includes government and that includes the private sector and the public sector it includes all arms of society coming together to address uh, responsible gaming. And it isn't just one. It isn't just on the industry alone, although it plays a big role. And it isn't just on government alone, although it plays a big role. It isn't just on the community, but they play a big role. It's everyone in this together. And the model that we have in Nevada is far from perfect. I don't want to suggest that it's perfect, but it actually can serve as a model to show one way of approaching this. Here in Nevada, the state sets aside a portion of funds. It's done through general, uh, general fund appropriation every session. And the money flows through the Department of, of Public Health. But before it gets spent, the Advisory Committee on Problem Gambling, in which I serve and am currently its chair, creates a task force and creates a strategic plan, and it advises the state on how that money should be spent. And on that committee are treatment providers, members of the, of the industry, members of academia, members of the public, some, some people in recovery, 
so it's a very it's a very disparate group of people that reflect the renal model and we bring different interests and different perspectives and have the opportunity to discuss what should our priorities be as a state and so therefore in that strategic plan it talks about research it talks about prevention talks about awareness and education of course it talks about treatment that's critical um, and it, it oh and it talks about workforce development how are we going to staff and if we're going to have treatment where are we going to find the treatment providers how do we train them how do we encourage them to to develop their careers and then what problems are they facing we have some very severe problems in the United States when it comes to billing for gambling treatment services so how can we advise the state on those topics and how much money should we be spending I don't need to tell anyone who's listening to this that there's never going to be enough money so we know that going in but we can always be advising the state on where to spend what funds it has and to the extent that there ever becomes a little bit more to spend where what the priorities ought to be and so that's what we do is it the perfect model no but until someone shows me better um, you know that's the one we're going to use and we're happy to share how we do that with anyone else there are states that are better funded than Nevada that's absolutely true but I also think that there are um, there are states that tend to be more siloed and that's the thing that you've got to try to break down because when that starts to happen then you get into you know quite literally you know one group or one department not knowing what the other one is doing and that's where you start wasting money or you know spending money on similar initiatives that are actually just wasteful absolutely that makes perfect sense because one of the choice of working from home is that your family members keep roaming around so you may have seen my wife and my daughter she's i did she's five months and growing fast and thanks to ellen she does have a hockey team in the western conference on top of the eastern conference namely the great golden knights of las vegas but i hope that she will stay true to the proper faith which are the boston bruins but i said that i would digress and but actually the reason why i wanted to pick up on on that potentially not very professional moment that um, we will have experience as part of that podcast is that the new game in town and by the town i mean the united states of america is clearly sports betting and of course, it's here to stay. So the my daughter's generation, I suppose uh, she will be exposed to all things sports betting. So I would just love to sound out your views on how you felt when the new game arrived to town, i.e. legalized sports betting, what issues it might have brought with itself and in the overall spirit of that podcast how would you suggest from your perspective that any responsible gambling or let's make it even wider any consumer protection issues need to be addressed in particular in connection with the virtual world of online sports betting mm -hmm. and internet gaming 
Well, look, I, the first thing I think is that we need to start to address them. This, this has been moving so quickly that there's been very little attention paid to what consumer protection really looks like. Um, it's been it's been left to operators and and most of the operators, and I'm I'm not trying to to blow smoke towards Entain, but Entain arrives at this topic with years of experience having done this in Europe, so that's a good thing. And you're not alone in that. There are others, but at the moment, no one knows what what really works. And even in Europe, there's been an awful lot of guesswork because government has just decided to throw anything at the wall and hope that it's right. And oftentimes it's just overreaction at its worst being dumped on, on operators. And, you know, you're just being told, well, let's put a, let's put a limit on something or no credit cards. You should never use credit cards. And, and that's it. Let's just do that. Well, no one knows if that makes any sense. So, and and one thing that's been shown in gambling for years and years and years now is enforced limits, enforced restrictions tend to have the exact opposite effect uh, because consumers tend to find ways to go around it. And it's usually the consumers, <clears throat> the actual consumers that you're trying to protect are usually the first ones to find ways around those. So we don't have time to take a breath and study everything. We, we, we've got to let this market grow because it wants to grow and it needs to grow and it ought to grow. But at the same time, we ought to jump on some studies as to what's actually happening out there and what makes some sense. The other side of it is I love the fact that the leagues six months, nine months, a year ago were all about integrity. Everything was about integrity, integrity all over the place. Boy, has that gone out the window. Now it's about signing deals. Let's sign deals. Let's become official this. Let's become official that. Fantastic. I'd love to get back to the notion of integrity as it relates to consumers and how they're perceiving what it is they're doing. And the leagues have a big role to play in this, as do the media themselves. The media who are carrying these, these messages, the media who are involved in promoting these messages ought to take a role in discussing how to do so responsibly. And they can't stay silent. They just can't. It, that's not responsible on their parts. So it, it, this is one of those moments where it's not only about the operators. There are too many folks involved in this and the leagues and the teams and the media must play their part in this as well. Um, you know, a simple way of, uh, of talking about this, uh, it, it drives me nuts. I can only imagine what it, it drives you crazy too. But, you know, you're reading a story about something about betting and the story all of a sudden talks about a kind of betting that's completely illegal you know, betting on the presidential race. Oh, you know, th th this, this candidate or that candidate is seven to two odds in favor. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> You're not allowed to bet on that. That's illegal. Or they'll then post the odds and credit a website or a betting service that is offshore and illegal. Actually operating illegally 
They'll take the bet, but it's illegal. Not say a word about it. It's, it is absolutely unbelievably irresponsible to do that. And yet it, it happens. As you know, we, we've discussed it offline before, and that is, yeah, one of my pet hates, and that, that does drive me nuts because I would like to think that in return of operator's pledge or commitment to play it by the book, get regulated, get licensed, respect all the rules, go beyond them along the lines you have suggested, what should come in return, and that, again, to your point about this space, at least from the pure consumer protection and, I would suggest, regulatory perspective, it's meant to be a communal space, one big family with the legislators, the regulators, the operators, researchers such as your, your, yourself, but also the leagues, the colleges. We should all be working together to protect the regulated fault, as I would call it, of operators that have been through arguably the pain of getting licensed, but we are, of course, doing it for all the right reasons, and we do be, do need to be working together on driving out those uh, black market operators, arguably based off tiny little rocks of the of the Caribbean. So that would be that would be my message, which hopefully echoes your message. We've talked a lot about responsible gambling, and perhaps before we wrap up, because I know that uh, you've had a lot of exposure to one of my favorite countries in the world, namely Japan. And oh, yeah. we talked about a couple of rather bizarre experiences that you had had there while, for example, giving interviews. So I will let you talk to it, but hopefully I have not followed pre-scripted patterns of uh, Japanese interviewers. So what would be your personal highlights connected with Japan on both the professional and personal side of things before we move on, on to final messages? that you'd like to give to the audience. Yeah, I think my favorite, uh, so it, just for context, uh, on, on behalf of MGM Resorts, I, I had been going to Japan from, oh, let me think here, roughly 2009 until just a couple of years ago uh, when, uh, well, a year ago, basically, when it, it all stopped. Um, and I, in that amount of time, 11 years or so, 11, 12 years, I probably made 60, 70 trips uh, in and out of Japan. So it was quite a bit. Um, early on, which was when there was first discussion of a law, and then the law actually was introduced, and then it took several years um, to get it ultimately passed. But uh, in, in early trips and meeting with, with legislators in Japan, um, they would frequently say, well, I don't know that we can do this because, as you know, we have no gambling in Japan. Now, this was, a, was then a $20 billion industry in Japan. There were pachinko parlors on every third corner in Tokyo. Um, there, was, there was a lottery seller when I say in walking distance from the legislature, from the diet, the capital of Tokyo, I mean, the capital of Japan, I mean, at the end of the street, you could go down to a lottery cellar. It, it was, there's horse racing and boat racing and bike racing. It's 
unbelievable how big the gambling industry is in Japan. But they, they call it and define it in the law as public entertainment. So from a legal perspective, it's sort of categorized as, as what you would, how you would define a movie. So they, they, they actually said, we have no gambling. And then I would talk about problem gambling as being very important. And once again, well, we have no gambling, so we can't have problem gamblers. They, they don't exist. Now, this at the same time as I am meeting treatment providers who have clinics, who have people that they are treating for gambling problems. Or I had attended a Gamblers Anonymous meeting. So it was, it was just like there were two universes and you were sort of able to travel between them. Um, and, and as a result of this bill being brought forward and there being public discussion, some of these folks, the, the treatment providers, the problem gamblers themselves, felt empowered to, to be more outspoken. And lo and behold, Japan had a gambling industry and Japan had problem gamblers. And, and there became more public discourse about it. And the, the punchline to all of this is that Japan ended up passing what they call gambling addiction countermeasures their problem gambling law got passed before they actually enacted their casino legislation. And that's the first country that I'm aware of to have a national standalone gambling addiction countermeasure law. The, the laws like that do exist in other countries, but they tend to be part of uh, the enactment of casino legislation. In Japan, the, the way in which the politics worked, one of the major parties said, we will not vote for the casino law unless you pass the gambling addiction countermeasure law first. And so the ruling party, at the time Shinzo Abe's party, said, okay. And that's what they did. And so what started as a very surreal experience ended up being honestly, a very proud moment. I mean, I, I was thrilled for them um, that they ended up doing the right thing, even though it started as, as just a very otherworldly kind of, kind of discussion. So once again, Alan Feldman delivered as we seem to be running out of natural light in London. <laughs> and although we've tried hopefully to roll largely in an unscripted fashion. Let me give you, let's say, a minute to wrap it all up. If you don't mind trying to distill down the discussion that we've had today about the key topics into 60 seconds before we do wrap up. So what would, what would that be, please? Um, responsible gambling is a strategic way of growth for the industry. It's a way, it's not just a protective uh, compliance issue. It's a way that we keep the industry healthy and thriving and growing. And that's how we should be discussing it. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. This has been the brilliant Mr. Alan Feldman. Arigato gozaimasu. Keep with the theme. Arigato gozaimasu. 
My name is Martin Lichka, and this has been the very first Martin Lichka Save Bet Show. I hope you've uh, enjoyed the program, and I shall see you next time. Take care, and bye-bye.